I was in a sparsely inhabited part of the Sahel, a savanna that stretches across Africa, south of the Sahara. It was 28 years ago, and I stood at the foot of a tree called Yir in Wolof. Normally, Yir has a moist green crown of leaves, but this tree was gray and lifeless. Yet it had no axe marks or insect tracks or signs of disease. It was one in a stand of dead trees. Uh, Now, in that subsistence society, people depend on trees for wood and poles and to protect their fields from wind erosion. That part of Africa has experienced the most severe decline in rainfall in the global weather station record, a reduction of 50% in a century and a major temperature increase. Uh, I eventually hiked 1,900 kilometers in the Sahel, counted and measured thousands of trees, interviewed hundreds of local people, and analyzed stacks of aerial photos. The data showed that one out of every five trees died in 35 years, and one of every three tree species disappeared locally in 50 years. A statistical analysis showed that two factors most explained the tree death, increased heat and increased aridity more than local human actions. Previous scientific research had attributed the increased heat and aridity to climate change. Human-caused climate change had killed those trees. Carbon emissions from industrial countries halfway around the world killed those trees in Africa. I used the results to help farmers protect small native trees in their fields and raise them in a traditional practice of natural regeneration. That started my career in science to advance science-based action on human-caused climate change to protect nature and human well-being. Welcome to Sunrise Bay Radio. We are broadcasting the decade of the Green New Deal from the occupied territory of the Ohlone people in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Marit. And I'm Richard. And that clip you just heard is an excerpt from an interview our correspondent Adam had with forest ecologist and climate change scientist Patrick Gonzalez from UC Berkeley. Patrick is also the principal of climate change science for the U.S. National Park Service. And he met with us to help explain to our audience what climate change will feel like here in the Bay Area. Marie, you've met him before, is that right? Well, I mean, met is a strong word. Um, (laughs) I I work for the U.S. National Park Service here in the Bay Area. Um, So you're a colleague. uh, (laughs) You know, my work is uh, with the the parks as science communication. So... I've put on some events, some symposia for the parks, and Patrick has been one of the speakers. So I've like emailed with Patrick, let's say that. <laughs> um, yeah, he's a really interesting person. Uh, he works with the parks and he works with UC Berkeley, and he's really just super committed to fighting for climate change. Like, 
I think he's gotten in trouble for some of the things he said, because as, as people who work for the government, also, I should just put in here that my views are my own and not my employers. It, it's easy to get in trouble. We're not supposed to take a political stance or anything like that. But Patrick has been really outspoken about, you know, that climate change is a crisis. And he's published a ton of papers about how climate change is going to affect the national parks. I think that's really impactful because thinking about how climate change could threaten um, these places where we can be close to nature, I think that really gets to gets under people's skin. And so I'm glad that Patrick has been so outspoken. Yeah, I think we've talked about this in prior issues. How did saving the planet become a political issue? But to effectively do that sort of work necessarily, I think, invites some of those political challenges. I don't know. This is something that I puzzled over in law school the entire time I was there. Like to to enact some of these statutes, to to enact some of these goals, you're, you're inviting a political controversy. So I think to, to speak to someone who sort of walks that line and still manages to speak out their values is pretty exciting. Yeah. And, and it, when it comes down to it, uh, he's a scientist. I sort of get the sense that he's that first. So he's a badass. I'm really excited to bring this content to our listeners. And let's dive into the interview. First, uh, I'll briefly review the science of climate change and its human cause, because that's the foundation of the understanding. Uh, So measurements have shown that carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas, has risen today to its highest level in 800,000 years. Cars, power plants, deforestation, and other human sources pump 11 billion tons of carbon each year into the atmosphere, twice the amount that forests, oceans, and other ecosystems can naturally absorb. So 5 billion tons goes up and accumulates in the atmosphere. This is the fundamental imbalance that causes climate change. And in effect, the increased heat of climate change is the equivalent of burning one 100-watt light bulb over every square meter of Earth continuously, day and night, every day of the year. Stanford University researchers have conducted a scientific poll of of American public opinion since 1997, and the results have consistently shown that three out of four Americans recognize this science of climate change and its human cause. This has gone up in some years, like 2007, after the movie uh, with Al Gore, An Inconvenient Truth. It's gone down slightly in other years when deniers have attacked science. Yet the American people have consistently recognized the science of climate change and its human cause. In the United States, the Obama-Biden administration substantially increased energy conservation, energy efficiency, renewable energy, and other action on climate change. This reduced emissions 12% from 2007 to 2017. Today, the Biden-Harris administration has returned the U.S. to the Paris Agreement and restored science-based action on climate change across the U.S. government. Now, international action has substantially increased. 
the countries of the world first joined together in 1992 in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Five years later, the Kyoto Protocol set greenhouse gas reductions for the industrial countries. And in 2015, the Paris Agreement brought almost every country in the world, 187 out of 194, in comprehensive greenhouse gas reduction goals. So science-based policies and action on climate change are increasing. change is impacting California, as I'm sure we all know, is its effect on the intensity and regularity of wildfires. I mean, this past year was pretty rough, especially combined with the pandemic, especially since September and October, like the nicest time in the Bay Area, like warm weather. And then it's like, do we just not get to have that season anymore? Like, is smoke just a new season here in California? It's like, pretty sad. Yeah. No, it's heartbreaking. Wildfire is a natural and necessary part of many forest and woodland ecosystems. Fires kill pests, release tree seeds to sprout, thin out small trees, and serve other functions essential for forest health. Excessive wildfire, uh, however, can kill people destroy homes, damage ecosystems, and emit carbon to the atmosphere, uh, exacerbating climate change. Century-old policies of suppressing all fires in California, even natural ones, have caused unnatural accumulations of woody fuel in the form of dense stands of small trees and layers of dead woody debris. At the same time, human-caused climate change has intensified the heat that drives wildfires. It, it, it has doubled burned area over natural levels across the Western US since 1984, including California. Um, in California, research by colleagues and me revealed that wildfire had changed California ecosystems into net emitters of carbon that exacerbates climate change in a self-reinforcing feedback. Now, continued climate change under the highest emission scenario, could increase wildfire frequencies up to three times in Sierra Nevada forests by 2100. Patrick really laid out how not only climate change, but poor forest management practices both have really coalesced uh, and contributed to California's really terrible recent rash of wildfires. Yeah, I mean, it's devastating. And the other thing to keep in mind is that there are some places where forest management can really be changed to help this issue, uh, like the Sierra Nevada really needs more fuel management. But places like the Bay Area, where there's so many people living on what, what we call the wildland urban interface, so the area where natural areas meet development, there's so many houses there that 
Land management agencies can't burn there. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say can't. Uh, the barriers to, to a lot of the management practices that would help this situation are kind of impossible in really highly populated areas where people are kind of spread out. Um, really, it is climate change that we can address because forest management can't solve all our problems. We have to deal with climate change as well. What your comments really drive home, though, is something that we've discussed a lot unless we act quickly slash even if we act quickly, this may become a central part of what it means to live in California. And that's really tragic, right? To, to contend with a season of smoke, especially when you, when you, when you combine that with COVID, I, I, I'm a two-time COVID survivor, right? And last September, I was actually in the midst of running a, a campaign for local office. So I was supposed to be out walking the hills, knocking on doors all day. And I remember I just like, I just couldn't. I, and I tried. I tried a couple of times to go out and walk and knock and I, w I would get dizzy and like my vision would start to darken like straight up. Going outside is going to be so much more difficult for people with pre-existing conditions or who survived COVID, which by now is probably a lot of us. Yeah. And I think it will affect, you know, young people who are looking to um, find a place to start families and, you know, the generation before us kind of had the option to like, go find a place in Santa Cruz in the woods. And I know people who are still doing that, but it comes with this huge question mark, which is, am I going to be safe here? Is my family going to be safe here? I'm curious to see like how in the future that changes um, where people are choosing to live or if it does. Well, uh, let's zoom out <laughs> and hear about other ways in which climate change beyond even the wildfires, which is obviously a massive obstacle in itself. But let's hear about the other ways in which climate change is impacting the Bay Area and the environment. Research by colleagues and me has shown that human-caused climate change has caused statistically significant increases of temperature in parts of the San Francisco Bay Area up to one and a half degrees Celsius since 1895. Now, that might not sound like a lot, so small increases in temperature can translate into major impacts on the ground. Other research has shown that the increased heat of human-caused climate change has caused nearly half the severity of a drought since 2000 across the southwestern U.S., including California. Consequently, in California, published field research has found that human-caused climate change has shifted biomes or major vegetation zones upslope. Climate change-induced drought has caused the local disappearance of 40% of bird species in Death Valley National Park, Joshua Tree National Park, and across the Mojave Desert since the early 1900s. Climate change has shifted the winter range of bird species across the U.S., including the San Francisco Bay Area, 30 kilometers north since 1975. All of those changes I just spoke about were uh, terrestrial, but 90% of the increased heat of climate change 
goes into the ocean. So measurements show that the temperature of the California current has increased eight-tenths of a degree Celsius since 1920. This exacerbated the marine heat wave in 2014 that killed fish off the California coast. And in addition, human-caused climate change raises sea level in two ways. Uh, The melting of glaciers and ice on land pours additional water into the ocean, and water expands when it warms. The San Francisco tidal gauge has recorded the longest time series of sea level in the Western Hemisphere from 1854 to today in 2021. It shows that climate change has raised sea level 33 centimeters since 1854. That's halfway to your knee. Wow, that was a lot of information Patrick went over. Good information, but but a lot of it. Uh, what, were, what were some things he said that stood out to you, Marie? I think the main thing is um, connecting kind of the numbers that we hear, like, oh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, with, like, what that actually means. Like, um, the fact that it's it's changing what can survive in an area and, and just how that's going to affect pretty much all living things, right? It doesn't mean it's going to kill all living things, but living things will kind of adapt or move or um, change, uh, you know, where, where they are having their homes and finding their food and, and all that stuff. And so it, it doesn't make, mean it's all 100% bad, but but it means that things will kind of have to get with the program and figure something out or um, it does mean we're going to lose a lot of species, I think. And, and that's, that's a really hard uh, thing to sit with. No, that, that really stood out to me too. And, and I think, I mean, you know, anyone who had like a fifth grade subscription to zoo books, right? Like you got to understand that biodiversity, it's this vast interconnected web where it's not just like save the bees because like the bees are cool. It's like save the bees because... And they are, they're very cool. But in, a, in an immeasurable amount of ways, they are directly tied to what keeps this environment livable for like other animals, for other plants, for us, right? And it's kind of like biodiverse Jenga. Like you don't know which piece, you know, it's good. Wow, that is a great analogy. Love that. Patrick Gonzalez has permission to steal that from me. Yeah. <laughs> just got to keep the tower up even if there are going to be some holes you know yeah but any block that we take out really like has a significant chance of causing toppling right well patrick also mentioned sea level rise and i think you can't not talk about sea level rise when you're talking about the bay area right i mean that's gonna have a direct impact on on people here people anywhere close to water so let's let's take a listen in to that Under the highest emission scenario, continued climate change could raise sea level uh, 1.4 meters or four and a half feet by 2100. In addition to that, a 100-year storm off the Pacific coast could add another 1.5 meters or five-foot water surge on top of the increased sea level. Um, So that combination of sea level and storm surge could increase uh, periodic flooding of wide coastal areas 
and permanently inundate some shoreline areas. And those storm surges could increase damage to the municipal pier in San Francisco. That's the historic long curving pier in San Francisco Maritime Historical Park. Um, in addition, when sea level rises, um, it starts in, it starts, the salt water starts intruding into the freshwater ground table that's uh, right at the surface. And a lot of communities along the coast depend on uh, the fresh water, uh, such as at Stinson Beach. Sea level rise seems like this kind of far off thing, but when you think about it's not just about like where the sea is now, it's about what happens when there's a storm. You know, we get these crazy like waves, like the king tides and stuff, and those are already like flooding the front of San Francisco. And it's just, um, yeah, crazy to think about like how, how those storms, how different people in different parts of the Bay Area are going to be affected by those storm surges and, and these changes. No, I mean, I know in recent years myself on social media, there have been videos of storm surges like wiping out, you know, just crashing through like cities in Central America, cities in Southeast Asia. And that's, you know, it's always tragic to look at there. But think about, you know, the low low lying areas of, you know, Richmond, West Oakland, San Rafael, right, where you have a lot of working class communities, a lot of people of color. Yeah, it's not like that's going to all be underwater tomorrow permanently, right? But the behavior of the water that we live next to, the storm surges, and and on top of just you know, the the encumbrance and the and the property damage, which of course would take a long time to recover from, there's all these other infrastructural issues that we got to think about, right? Like there's salt water intruding into our groundwater supply because of those sudden increases. The the impacts of that, even if one of those storm surges happens, years, you de- we're you got to deal with those impacts thereafter. Well, I feel like talking about all this is making me all the more anxious <laughs> to hear what, what Patrick has to say about what we can do and what we are doing and kind of what are the what's the policy side of all this. Um, so let's let's dive into that. I can't wait to hear some good news. California, the city and county of San Francisco and local governments in the San Francisco Bay Area have been forward thinking and have developed climate change plans. Um, Importantly, all of these plans recognize that cutting carbon pollution from human sources is the fundamental solution to avoiding the most drastic consequences of climate change. We spoke about the increase in wildfire in the Western US, including California. And um, again, Uh, Most importantly, the fundamental solution to prevent catastrophic wildfires is cutting carbon pollution from human sources. But uh, in addition, proactive use of fire could reduce risks to people's lives and homes. So scientific research and field practice have shown that two actions in particular can reduce fuel loads and effectively restore ecologically appropriate fire regimes. The first is prescribed burning. That's preemptively setting low severity fires 
during cooler weather. The second is managed wildland fires. That is a practice of allowing remote natural fires to burn in the wilderness. The extent of burning now could avert damage later. With uh, regard to sea level rise, uh, resilience measures, uh, uh, effective resilience measures include the conservation of wetland ecosystems that can naturally absorb much of the storm surge and the higher waters of sea level rise. Golden Gate National Recreation Area, a, a national park, and the city of San Francisco and the county of Marin have been collaborating on sea level rise adaptation plans for Chrissy Field uh, and uh, Stinson Beach. And the plans center on natural shorelines, which are more durable and less expensive than hard engineering structures. Uh, in, in addition, restoration of wetlands uh, creates uh, an area where the increased water and the storm surge, um, uh, it, it creates an area that can accept the, uh, those increased waters. Um, now, of course, some critical infrastructure like San Francisco International Airport requires seawalls but much of the coastline um, would benefit from these uh, natural shoreline uh, features. Great to great to hear some solutions from Dr. Gonzalez. Um, you know, I I just I love hearing people talk about natural shorelines. It just makes me happy. I think that's awesome. And and the stuff about fire and I, I do think there's a lot we we can do again about wildfire with um, sort of landscape level action and coordination. Uh, but you know, there's some places where we're not going to be able to just let wildfires burn as they will like if if it's gonna cause harm to people or their homes or infrastructure like there's gonna be a pretty high impetus to to suppress those fires so i i agree with patrick that the fundamental solution is really to address you know fossil fuel um emissions it's an an elegant solution to you know address the root and i think sunrise has some ideas for how to address that root cause Right. No, exactly. I mean, that, like you said, it's an elegant solution. And the message, it's really inspiring, I think, for a lot of us to hear that policy can be a a tool that we use to affect that, right? And this is why things like the Green New Deal, either the California Green New Deal, Federal Green New Deal, are so exciting. Because when we hear about all these issues, a lot of us get paralyzed, right? Like, okay, I know the earth is effed. What am I supposed to do about it, right? It's like, I don't even know where I would start. And luckily there's, like we just heard, smart people coming up with practical policy ideas where this is how we can start. And this is something that the rest of us can organize around, rally around, and treat as a, you know, a societal flashpoint to get the ball rolling in the right direction. So the fact that any and and all these policies could become a part of or an extension of a Green New Deal or some of the policies that Biden's administration is already enacting 
it puts wind in my sails at the very least. And I also really liked that Patrick talked about how we have the technology to address this crisis. You know, the Biden administration just approved the first major offshore wind farm in the country, uh, which generate enough electricity to power 400,000 homes. Um, So, you know, we have the tools and the more pressure we put on the political establishment to, you know, enact these policies, the closer we'll get to to addressing, you know, the root cause of this crisis. I wonder what Patrick thinks we as normal people should do about all this. You know, it's a lot of information. And I'm sure he gets asked that question all the time of, yeah, what can we do? Not not just local governments and, and people who are in these positions of power, but what, what can our listeners do? Again, I will emphasize the fundamental solution to avoiding the most drastic consequences of climate change is reducing carbon pollution uh, from human sources. Um, so in the United States, transportation generates more carbon emissions than any other sector. What you can do is walk, bike, or take public transportation. Riding BART reduces your emissions 88% compared to driving a car. Uh, I live a car-free life and encourage you and all your listeners to also. And research also indicates that global adoption of a plant-based diet could reduce global emissions 17%. This is because cows generate a lot of methane and because growing feed crops uses a lot of energy. And uh, for those of you who pay the electric bill um, in your household, uh, PG&E offers a solar choice program where you can purchase 100% renewable energy. They use scientifically sound criteria in this program. They use the funds to install new solar and new wind that would not otherwise been built uh, except for the additional funding of people that sign up for the program. And uh, uh, that's... Uh, uh, that's uh, how I get my um, electricity uh, also. Um, uh, other than that, um, you know, again, that's the fundamental solution is reducing uh, uh, carbon pollution, riding BART, living a car-free life, um, uh, adopting a plant-based diet, uh, uh, installing or buying renewable energy, recycling and reusing, I know that uh, you and your listeners uh, know all these and live a lot of these, and I appreciate your individual, uh, your individual efforts help all of us because billions of unsustainable actions have caused the problem of climate change. So billions of sustainable actions, however small, will help solve it. I think all the all the things that Patrick said about ways that we can reduce our own impacts are 100% true and backed by science. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, we also know from science that humans tend to do things um, 
like what we know from social science is that humans tend to do the kind of easier thing. Um, we, we go for the kind of frictionless option, right? And so I, I think it's the impetus is really on um, how we set up our society, um, how governments and companies uh, set up our society to uh, kind of trigger those decisions and have them be the right decisions, right? We, we want to have the, be- the choices that people make be um, the best ones for the climate and for the collective good. Um, and I think that a lot of the, the onus for that is on, is on governments and, and companies and um, how, how we are setting up our society. I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes I think the way that we, at least in Sunrise, those young young people of us in Sunrise, talk about and organize around climate change is so different than maybe what, what I saw. I don't know what you saw growing up. Like when I was nine years old in fourth grade going to, you know, Malcolm X Elementary in Berkeley, I thought people that drove were the freaking devil, you know? Like I walked to school, everyone was like biking and I would cry thinking about a future where I would maybe have to drive one day. And now I drive every day to go get beef from a fast food restaurant. You know what I mean? So um, <laughs> my, I've, the mighty have fallen. But I think that speaks to a lot of how not only some of the issues that you've said, but that any organizing, climate organizing, organizing around racial justice, capitalism, whatever, it's so tough. But we really succeed when we get everyone to keep in mind the the hyper local and individual and the systemic, right? Because both are intertwined and fighting one doesn't abdicate us from another. And maybe recognizing where we're limited in one area doesn't mean that we're not effectively organizing, right? And that's why I'm really thankful that Sunrise nationally has placed so much of an onus on if we organize around big policy and companies and things like that, we can cause titanic shifts in 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 the landscape of climate change on top of that yes let's recycle our bath water right but <laughs> you know, like, but that doesn't but th- that alone doesn't mean that you're the best kid at school or the worst kid at school right i think that's a really beautiful point and just you know all of us are go- doing better in some areas and not as good in other areas uh, but the one thing that we can agree on is that gas and oil companies like need to go down the down. They need to go down. Like, like we can all do better, but they can do a lot more freaking better. <laughs> what do you think is the one thing that you're going to kind of take away from this interview with Patrick? I think it's refreshing to me because when you, it's so clear when you talk with someone who's just passionate about what they do, right. Or passionate about what they care about. And that's why I got into Sunrise and wanted to start doing this podcast with you is because on top of everything, on top of how scared I am, on top of how desperate I am, I'm also excited and passionate about a world with more than one offshore wind farm, you know, a world replete with with, with solar panels and, and people who are, because we've shifted the fabric society enough, they can afford electric cars. There's massive public transportation, right? Those things excite me. And when you hear the the verve and Patrick's voice, it takes me back to that. It connects me back to that. So that's what I take away from it. I don't know. What what about you? Hell yeah. Wow. I really resonate with that. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm just impressed with the level, like the amount of knowledge in, in his brain and just how he's able to look at this problem that is so huge um, and see how each, each of the individual problems that stem from it need to be addressed on their own 
And also we need to see the big picture. And we need to deal with kind of the downstream consequences like, oh, the sea level is rising. We can't have flooding. But we also need to address that our fossil fuel emissions. You know, it's like at every step of the the problem, we need people kind of working to find solutions at every level. And, and I think I think he did a, a really good w- uh, job of outlining a huge issue today. Um, and I'm, I think that was awesome. All right. Well, yeah. Well, once again, we just want to thank Patrick for sharing all this information with us. We all learned a lot. We were all reminded of a lot. We hope everyone listening learned a lot as well. And uh, look out for our next episode on a Green New Deal for public transportation coming out soon. Yeah, make sure to follow our hub on social media. We are on all the cool channels that the kids are on these days, except for maybe TikTok. Honestly, I don't think. Yeah, it's like, do we have a TikTok yet? No. If you know how to use TikTok and you want to get involved, like get in touch because we we need we need we need more Gen Z, uh, you know, clout. Um, So also share this episode with your friends. Um, And big thanks to our producers this week, Malcolm and Adam. And as always, we echo Marie for our music. Catch you next time. There could be.